Shalom and thank you for clicking to listen to one of our audio messages. At Tikvat David, we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. We hope that this message will encourage, inform, and inspire you to follow Yeshua and to walk in the pathways of Torah. Enjoy. Well, last week was our first week in Philippians, and we had a good discussion uh, about introductory-type matters for this letter. And we looked at the first two verses of chapter 1, and we noted that Paul makes two uh, noteworthy designations in these opening verses. We saw that first he refers to himself and Timothy as doulos, uh, which is a Greek word meaning servants, or some translate as bond servants. So Paul terms himself a servant of the Messiah Yeshua. And we noted that this self-designation uh, indicated uh, Paul's really his continued faithfulness to Yeshua despite so much hardship and many adverse conditions, and and really many adversaries as well. So we noted that by Paul terming himself a doula, it really demonstrated humility from Paul, who, despite having some notoriety at this point and being later in his career uh, as an apostle, it appears that he really didn't have an inflated view of himself by thinking of himself in that term. Now, the second noteworthy designation that Paul makes in these opening verses is that he refers to his audience as agios. He uses, that's a, that's a Greek word, which is typically translated as holy ones or saints. Um, and so, um, you know, the significance, we, we really emphasized last week that even though that we can easily read past that quickly uh, in passing, uh, we noted that for Paul to speak of his non-Jewish audience, these Philippians, as agios, or the, the Hebrew equivalent uh, would be uh, ketoshim, holy ones. That to, to use that terminology was really unprecedented coming from a Jewish teacher. This was, in effect, Paul's redrawing the boundary lines of humanity. To speak of Gentiles as Gentiles, or to, to, to refer to them as holy, was really not a category that existed in Paul's time. According to the taxonomy of the day, to be a Gentile was to be a pagan, to be a pagan was to be a Gentile. And in Jewish thinking, a Gentile by nature was a sinner, as Paul articulates in Galatians chapter 2. But Paul was saying that because Gentiles were in Christ, that that had all changed. And that those boundary lines had changed in the sense that Gentiles were now, uh, who were in Christ, that their substance, their very nature had changed so that they also could be part of the family of Abraham in Messiah. So Paul was saying this, and this really was the radical, innovative component of his gospel. It wasn't so radical to claim allegiance to a Messiah. Uh, it, you know That was not a novel idea. But to claim that the nations were now um, part of the family of Abraham as equals in Messiah, uh, that was something very, very different uh, that he was saying had, had begun. Uh, as far as how he understood the Messianic prophetic time clock. Gentiles were now holy because they were in Christ, as Paul put it, and they were no longer sinners by nature. Rather, they'd been adopted into Abraham's family because of their new allegiance to Yeshua and the indwelling of the, the pneuma, the, the ruach. The pneuma is the Greek term for spirit, and the, the ruach, of course, is Hebrew for spirit. But it was the spirit of God, the spirit of Messiah inside Gentiles that made them part of the 
uh, family of Abraham now. So Paul's writing this letter because he has learned that the Philippians are suffering for their identification with Yeshua. And a group or possibly multiple groups have emerged in Philippi who are attempting to lure these holy ones, these agios, away from association with Yeshua. So Paul is writing Philippians to convince these disciples that suffering for Yeshua, whatever that looked like for them, the marginalization, the, the economic effect it was having on them socially, culturally, and so forth, all those are possibilities and likelihoods. All of that was worth it. And that the temporary social benefits and relief that they were being offered by whoever these uh, opponents of Paul's were, whatever those benefits were that were being offered were not comparable to the surpassing riches of being in Christ, is Paul's argument. So that's really my framework for reading and interpreting Paul's letter to the Philippians. I also noted, uh, and will continue to note, that my framework is that Paul is operating within Judaism, uh, that there had not been a parting of the ways at this point, but that Paul uh, was a Jewish teacher to Gentiles, and essentially he was he was teaching this Philippian his Philippian audience, which was uh, certainly primarily, if not exclusively Gentiles, he's essentially teaching them Judaism for the nations, Judaism for Gentiles, uh, in light of the inbreaking of the Messianic era through Yeshua. So I want to continue with verse 3 of chapter 1 to see how Paul begins to make his case for these disciples to remain in Messiah as opposed to the alternatives being offered to them by those Paul calls his opponents. There's a lot of application and relevance to these concepts even for us today. So we will uh, we'll, we'll visit those points and try to apply this uh, as we go along. So let's read verses 3 through 11, and then we'll discuss uh, a few features of this uh, powerful chunk of text. So starting in verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So we see in verse 3 that Paul begins this section with a word of thanksgiving. Now, it was very common in ancient uh, letters in Paul's time to begin with a word of thanks, and we see that Paul follows this convention. Uh, Actually, Galatians is the only letter that Paul writes to a congregation in which he doesn't begin with a word of thanksgiving. Uh, and, and I think we can uh, presume that that was, or assume that that was because he was getting right to the point with the Galatians and that was a, a different situation and he was really fired up in Galatians. And I think he's pretty pretty um, concerned here with the Philippians. But uh, this, is a, this is a different situation and a different time and Paul's approaching things a little bit differently. So he starts with a word of thanks. Uh, and so even though this was a common feature of ancient letters, I think we shouldn't just assume that Paul was merely following a, a convention. Uh, as a human character, I think it's uh, safe to say that Paul is clearly strong and he's opinionated, but I think he's there's a gracious and thankful side of Paul. So uh, a few months ago, I was doing an interview with Paula Fredrickson, 
in her home. And Paula Fredrickson, some of you probably know her. She's a uh, a world class Pauline scholar and has written some excellent books. In particular, her book I, I loved, um, uh, Paul the Pagan's Apostle. Uh, I recommend it if you haven't read it. It's it's a really fantastic book. But uh, one of the things that that she said uh, in my interview with her, as well as in in some other uh, presentations I've heard uh, her give, she said that she thinks that Paul saw himself as always right, uh, that Paul was never wrong. And and as much as I respect Paula Fredrickson, um, I, I don't quite agree with her take on Paul's general manner. I agree with her that Paul was very strong, but I see a very gracious side of Paul also and quick uh, to to give thanks and quick to be practi- practical and gracious and, and, and to deal with the realities of things on the ground. So uh, I don't want this point to escape us. Uh, I think it's it's important uh, that even if we are strong and we're defined and have convictions and how we see things when it comes to Paul, the Bible, Torah, whatever it may be, I think it's so important for us that we always be gracious uh, in our tone and manner and that thankfulness uh, really should always lead the way in characterizing uh, how we conduct ourselves uh, as we're as we're approaching Scripture, and especially for us as followers of Yeshua, um, I know in in our synagogue in Atlanta, we uh, Tikvat Tavi, we we say that our uh, one of our values uh, on our value statements, we have four core values, um, and one of them is to express love and respect, and and we want that to saturate the culture of our synagogue, and I'm grateful that it does, and I think that this was Paul's way to express love and respect. And you can be strong and still express love and respect. So I think that was Paul's way, and uh, may it be ours as well. Well, moving on to verse 4, Paul says that he expresses his gratitude for the Philippians. Uh, He says in verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now, I'm interested in how Paul phrases this. He says he makes his prayer with joy, is how the ESV renders it. Now, he uh, tells us why he has joy in verse 5, but I want uh, to note that the Greek word for joy is karas. Uh, The Septuagint actually uses the the Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Greek translation of of the Old Testament. actually uses the same word, karas, the Greek word karas, when it translates the Hebrew words uh, simcha and sason. Uh, which are, are well-known Hebrew words, which mean joy and gladness. And so I think it's important for us to, to think about and, and to just you know learn from Paul here and ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to pray with joy? You know, for us in, in, in Judaism, uh, Messianic Judaism, can we pray liturgy with joy? How about non-liturgical prayer when we're talking to God? Well, I think that in Paul's mind, uh, prayer, any kind of prayer, should be done with joy. With gladness, so certainly there's times where we're we're really zeroed in and focused, and 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 maybe have a more serious tone to our prayers. But I think it's always important for us to um, to approach our heavenly Father with respect and with love and with fear, uh, but also with joy, because He wants to meet with us. Well, moving on uh, to ver- verse five. Uh, Here in chapter 1, Paul says that he has joy in prayer because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Now, uh, this is obviously a very important point here. Here at the beginning of the letter, Paul is making it clear that he views the recipients of this letter as partners. In other words, they are part of his tribe, if you will. Or we could maybe say uh, they are part of, of this 
Judaism subgroup that is persuaded that Yeshua is the Messiah and is and is um, you know is is manifesting the realities, the messianic realities of that uh, of that phenomenon. And then in verse six, Paul drives this home a bit further, and he says, "And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ." Now, uh, I read this verse right here maybe a little different than how it's it's typically read. Um, I, one, I want to frame this by saying that we, we have to keep in mind, uh, I think no matter what our reading of the text is, uh, that Paul is writing a letter. He's writing a letter. He's not writing theology. Now, we derive theology from his letters, but he's not thinking in terms of, hey, I'm trying to write a theological treatise here. He's writing the people to persuade them of a certain way of thinking. And I think that, that is very, very important. And he is, Paul is has rhetoric and persuasive uh, devices all over his letter because he's a, he's a human letter writer, although, again, he's writing with apostolic authority and we would say uh, with under the inspiration of the, the Spirit of God. So back to verse 6, though, he said, I, I read this verse to be very significant in his framing of the letter. And in my reading, uh, I, I think that this is Paul's way of stating his goal for the letter. He wants the Philippians to be complete at the day of Jesus Christ. But I have some questions about this verse, and I want to look at it carefully with you. Um, you know, I, I just as, as we're going through this, and I'm sure some of you have your Bibles open and are looking at this, I hope you do, or on your phone or whatever it may be, but I want you to be thinking, you know, as you're looking at verse 6 uh, here, and Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ, based on the statement, what do you think we can assume about Paul's concern? Again, with Paul, just like any other letter writer, or when we open emails today, uh, you know, again, emails, and I'm not necessarily comparing uh, or, or making a direct drawing a direct line between our emails and Paul's letters. Obviously, there's a quite a big difference there, but there are some similarities too. Just like any other piece of correspondence we receive, we have to do our best to read between the lines. Now. We don't have to read between the lines to understand what Paul hopes will happen. Um, what he hopes will happen is that they will, you know, he who began a good work, they'll, you know, he'll bring, they'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, the God who began a good work in them, that that their their salvation, that their uh, standing in Jesus Christ will be made complete. So we don't have to wonder what Paul hopes will happen. But I do think we need to read between the lines to try to figure out what he hopes will not happen. So I think this statement here actually assumes that Paul is concerned that the Philippians are getting off track and that they may not be uh, complete, that they will be, we could say, incomplete at the day of Yeshua. I think that there's actually, you know, I, I think he's trying to frame their thinking here, and I would, I would even ask as you're looking at the verse and thinking about it, you know, do, do you see any, uh, what I'll say, positive manipulation? And I mean positive manipulation. I don't mean he's being tricky or, or, or sinister in, in his motives at all. I think he's completely being pure and, and, and godly in his intents here. But, I'm, I'm, of course, the way I'm framing this, uh, I'm, I'm asking, do you see any positive manipulation in Paul's phrasing here? 
And of course, you can tell the answer to my uh, question is I think there is. Uh, I think actually Paul is 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 kind of speaking like a parent who says something uh, like I might say to to my kids. Look, I I have older uh, kids. Uh, kids are, that are that are teenagers. I have two drivers. Uh, a third, uh, Esther, is about to get her driver's license. But I could easily say something uh, to Joseph, uh, like, "Hey, Joseph, I am quite confident that when you are out with your friends tonight, uh, that you're going to drive carefully, and you're going to obey the speed limit, and you're you're going to not." have too many people in your car and you are going to focus on the road and you will arrive home safely tonight. Joseph, I know that's what you're going to do tonight. So again, I say, you know, maybe not quite that intense, uh, but I say stuff like that to my kids all the time. And I'm not being manipulative, uh, but I am seeking to fill their mind with the result that I think is best for them based from my vantage point as an authority figure. And I say this because I do actually have a concern that there could be a different outcome, such as my kids driving too fast and not focusing on the road and having too many of their friends in the car and thus possibly getting into an accident and not making it home safely. So my reading of Paul is I think that this is actually what's going on in Paul's language here. Um, Now, I think he's I think he's trying to to communicate what he wants to happen with some concern that it may not happen. Um, so I think there's some some persuasive uh, languaging going on in how he's putting this. So uh, you know that's certainly not the only way to read that verse, but that's my take uh, here on on what's going on. Now uh, before we move on, let's talk about the phrase at the end of verse six. So Paul speaks of here uh, in verse six. He speaks of, he, he just refers quickly to the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase is unique to Paul, and it sounds similar to what uh, the Tanakh refers to as the day of Hashem, or the day of the Lord. So uh, I'm curious, I, I wish we had some interaction here. I'd be curious to know what you think uh, as far as, is Paul referring, when he refers to the day of Jesus Christ, is he referring to the same concept as the, the day of the Lord that we see mentioned uh, throughout the uh, throughout the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, or is this something different? Is the day of the Lord one thing, and the day of Jesus Christ a different thing? Um, so, if it's the same, if these are the same things, uh, why does he modify the language here to speak of the day of Jesus Christ and not just say the day of the Lord? Uh, again, he, here he, I would say this is another phrase that Paul uses in passing that has significant theological and prophetic ramifications. Well, Paul doesn't elaborate on what he means by day of Jesus Christ. Uh, In the Tanakh, uh, in the Old Testament, generally speaking, the day of the Lord refers to an end times day of judgment, generally speaking. Now, my reading of Paul and his use of the term day of Jesus Christ uh, is that he is referring to the same thing as the day of the Lord. And uh, noted Uh, New Testament scholar Craig Keener uh, agrees with that viewpoint, although I think there's room for disagreement on on that viewpoint, and and there are interpreters who think that these are two different things here. So being that Paul is convinced that Yeshua is the Messiah and King of Israel, it makes sense that he would insert Jesus Christ in this concept and, and, and see... Uh, the day of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord as the same thing with Yeshua, you know, presiding over that end times day of the Lord judgment period. 
And modifying, I think for Paul, modifying day of the Lord to day of Jesus Christ, it actually fits in with his rhetorical objective to convince the Philippians to not depart from Yeshua in light of the day of judgment that will one day come. So essentially he's saying that in Christ, so to kind of bring us up to where we are in the letter, he's saying in Christ, they've become holy ones. They've become saints. They become agios. And thus they'll have nothing to fear on the day of Jesus or on the, on the day of judgment or the day of Jesus Christ. So I also want to note here that this is, uh, and I want to underscore that this is one of multiple examples in Philippians where Paul speaks of Yeshua in very exalted terms to insert Yeshua the Messiah or to, you know, Jesus um, into day of the Lord. Uh, that is no small thing to speak of the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it, it does make a Christological statement. Now, what I mean is that Paul's choice to inter, interchange the name of Yeshua with, uh, with Hashem, with the name of Hashem, day of the Lord, day of Jesus Christ, he's, he's using those concepts and terms interchangeably. It really does, I think, point or it's, it's evidence of Paul having a high Christology uh, in Paul's thinking. Uh, Christology is just is kind of the, the, the theological term for how do we view the nature of Yeshua. Uh, a low Christology would see him as, you know, him him uh, just merely being a man. A higher Christology would see Yeshua um, having having a divine nature, um, and 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 so that's just very loosely speaking, or generally speaking, how we would how we think of that term Christology. But in Paul's thinking, clearly Yeshua is a man. And there's only one God. Uh, we see Paul mention that multiple times. Yet for us, there's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. But Paul is making statements here, and he makes statements, statements elsewhere, and he'll make other statements in this letter that indicate that Yeshua is no ordinary man. Paul is using exalted, lofty, and divine language with reference to Yeshua, which indicates that Paul somehow sees Yeshua within the range of divinity. And again, we'll, we'll explore that a little bit further when we get into Philippians chapter 2, uh, when Paul makes a similar move in the famous uh, hymn statement that he makes in, in Philippians 2. But I think that this, again, this is evidence and, and an indication uh, of, of a high Christology in Paul. Um, now, I, I'm going to note here that I, I'm not going to—I uh, don't intend to spend time in this series um, uh, analyzing— or kind of getting off on the side of 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 the uh, you know trinitarian conversations and and so forth uh, but but I do want to note here what I see is Paul's view of Yeshua's nature in this letter and my reading is that Paul viewed Yeshua as divine but he did so within his firm commitment to the Shema namely that God is one and more broadly I I think it's uh, significant to acknowledge that um, you know, I think it's significant you know, put this this that, that concept because a lot of especially in the messianic world and uh, there, there's a lot of you know continued arguments and, and conversation about the divinity of Yeshua and that's a it always seems like it's a hot button topic. But I do think it's significant to acknowledge that later and modern interpreters and theologians did clearly, um, vex over this issue of the divinity of Yeshua, is Yeshua God, those kinds of questions. And and I would say necessarily so in, in some cases that those things need to be fleshed out. But I think it's important to, to mention as we're just thinking about the New Testament 
letters, the apostolic documents themselves. Um, I don't see Paul or the other apostles debating or vexing over this question, over the divinity of Yeshua, uh, nor do I see them as, as compelled uh, to create a tight and narrow theological statement regarding Yeshua's nature. Again, not that that's wrong to do. I'm not making a subtle um, attack on, on doctrinal statements or anything like that. It's just that the New Testament doesn't really make— now, the New Testament, there are issues that the New Testament clearly argues over, you know, the issues of Torah for, for especially and, and circumcision and, and so forth for Gentiles. I mean, that is something that they go to the mat on. But the issue of Yeshua's divinity is just is not something that they really seem to, um, you know, they believe that God was one and they also had a high Christology and saw Yeshua as divine. And um, and, and that was not something that they felt like they need to really elaborate on. You know, Hebrews can say he is, you know, speak of Yeshua as the radiance of God's glory. Wow, that's unprecedented type language. Um, And also believe that God is one. Okay, so uh, before I digress uh, too much, uh, let's move on on here. Um, But uh, we're going to, as we go through this letter, my hope is just, you know, again, to let the texts speak for themselves and we'll compare texts with other texts. Um, But uh, let's finish out this section and uh, and look at verses 7 through 11, where Paul says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I'd like to zero in on verses 7 and 8 for a moment and and just want to encourage you to look at the text and and, and just ask, you know, what what do you see there that, that I just read and in the text that indicates uh, Paul's feelings towards the Philippians? Um I think that's a significant question there, that the tone here is really quite different than what we see in a letter like Galatians. Uh, I I think Paul loved the Galatian community also, but the tone here towards the Philippians is quite affectionate. He's being very gentle with them, and he's using language which emphasizes uh, really his, his tender love for them. Um, so, you know, you wonder why, what are, what are some possibilities to why Paul is seeming to, to bend over backwards to speak in these terms to the Philippians? Well, I, I think for one, I think he's, uh, I think he's competing for their allegiance, uh, uh, and there are competitors in view clearly on the ground. Uh, I also think that Paul is, is a little bit older now, uh, as compared to Galatians, and he's more pastoral, seasoned, and gracious than he once was. I think the language, the more tender language, uh, most clearly, though, Paul tells us in verse verse 9 uh, why he's using this love language. Paul is expressing his love to them uh, so that the Philippians will do the same towards each other. He says it's my, he's, he's, he's speaking in a way that he hoped will be mirrored in them. He says it in verse 9, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Again, Paul is, 
you know, he is an incredibly sharp, intuitive thinker. I think uh, to use a modern term, um, he had a tremendous EQ, uh, emotional quotient, if you will. I think he could read people. I think he could read emotions and and, uh, really well. And so when you combine that with his apostolic authority and the role of the Spirit of God within him uh, and the Spirit of God working through what he's writing, what you have here is a letter that is crafted to pierce hearts and minds in a very positive way to bring about a desired result. So in verses 3 through 8, Paul speaks of his love for the Philippians, and he hopes, I think he's hoping that's going to rub off in how they love each other. And I think Paul's doing this in a, in a subtle way to compel the Philippians to stay on course with their allegiance to Yeshua. I think, I think Paul is saying that, look, siding with, with him, siding with Paul is siding with Yeshua, and siding with Yeshua produces love and knowledge and discernment, as it says in verse 9. And in verse 10, Paul speaks of praying that they may approve what is uh, excellent. The Greek word for approve uh, there in verse 10 is the word uh, dokimazo, uh, dokimazo, which means to test, literally or figuratively, um, by implication to approve, to allow, to discern, to examine. So I think that Paul is confident that the love of Yeshua from him to them and from them to each other, I think he's thinking that the authenticity and power of that love will help them to discern that the way of Yeshua is the way to go and the way to stay in as opposed to going towards the alternatives, the luring alternatives that they're being offered. And I think that discernment is going to help them to see that that the way of Yeshua is excellent, as it says in verse 10, uh, in comparison to these opponents. So Paul is saying that the way of Yeshua, it's the way of love. And that way will make you pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And that it will produce the fruit of righteousness mentioned in verse 10. So this is very powerful language here from Paul. And there's, uh, there's so much application for us. The way of Yeshua, as we know, it's not easy. Uh, everybody listening to this knows that there are many paths that compete for our allegiance. Uh, there's the path that says just you know give up on God, give up on Yeshua. Uh, maybe if you're in Messianic Judaism, there's a path that says uh, you know hey just just give up on Yeshua and just go this much easier, smoother path of of normative mainstream Judaism. Or maybe if you're in the you know in a Christian in the church, there's a there's an easier you know path or an easier church. Maybe a maybe a church that offers massive programming and and all kinds of opportunities, but maybe they're really light on teaching the Word of God faithfully. So there are many paths that compete for our allegiance, and there are many options that would possibly position us better in the short term for social benefits, material benefits, economic benefits, and even religious benefits. But I think what Paul is saying here is that Yeshua is the most excellent way. He makes all of us into holy ones who are filled with the fruit of righteousness, which leads to the glory and praise of God. He's saying, stay with the master. Stay with Yeshua. So may God help each of us to stay on track, to stay with Yeshua, and to to play the long game, as it were, to trust uh, that God will protect and provide us and reward us in the end uh, for our allegiance to Yeshua the Messiah. 
Thank you for listening to this audio message from Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue. We would love to get to meet you in person sometime at the synagogue, so come join us for Shabbat or one of the holidays. Also, you can join us in building Messianic Judaism whether you live in the Atlanta area or far away by financially contributing to our synagogue. You can learn about the options for giving under the Donate tab at tikvatdavid.org. At Tikvat David, we would love to have you stand with us as we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. Shalom.